0: You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 109. Hey there, folks. This is Chris. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. At the time this episode airs, my partner Melanie and I will be on vacation up north in beautiful Door County, Wisconsin. Since I'm not going to be around to put together a regular episode, I'm going to share one of the panels I was on at Balticon 51. It's called Biology is a Science 2, and it featured me and a bunch of other scientists talking about the role of the biological sciences in science fiction. I had a ton of fun with this panel, and I think you will, too.
1: All right, well, welcome. I don't know if we actually have technically a moderator. Do we have a moderator? You just got volunteered. Yeah, <laughs> it's too late to do this one. Okay. So, um, the technical name of this panel, I should, don't even have the description here yet, is Biology is a Science too. Woo! Woo-hoo! Woo! It's a good thing they don't describe this with a question on Is biology a <laughs> science? They're just like, yes. go. Um, so, I am Dr. Tom Holtz. I am a dinosaur paleontologist. So, I have feet in both the world of geology and the world of evolutionary biology, um, and um, <coughs> I am happy to be here and to talk about living things, and we could introduce ourselves, let's go down along the pathway. And okay,
2: um, I'm Chris A. Jackson, um, I started out life as a marine biologist, my father was a fisherman, I fell in love with the sea, and then I promptly sold my soul to biomedicine because they pay a lot more than <laughs> marine sciences. Do um, I worked in that field for about 20 years and uh, then quit my day job, went sailing, and uh, now I'm making a living writing books. Um, fantasy primarily. I also write a little science fiction. Um, I write for a lot of gaming publishers. I do Pathfinder Tales for Paizo. Nice. Um, oh yeah, that, that's uh, the funnest publisher in the world, Paizo. Um, they're cool people. Um, I also write my own title. I'm a hybrid author. We're doing that um, panel later today. Um, hybrid authors, and uh, that's actually my bread and butter, Um, the um, Magical Assassin series. I'm not
0: all nautical. I do a lot of nautical pirate stuff, too, but uh, I are a scientist as well. (laughs) My name is Chris Lester. My website is chrislester.org. I am a microbiologist. Basically, we take drugs, people send us drugs, and we test them to make sure that they don't have bad stuff growing in them. Before I was doing that, I was in clinical research out in Bozeman, Montana. Before that, I was a science teacher at the high school level, and before that, I was a marine biologist. I was <laughs> this I, is my evil twin, Chris. I know, right? Yeah. And it has to do with the name, Chris. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so I worked on uh, I worked on elephant seals on uh, oh, cool. the on physiological ecology, and before that, my undergrad was in biochemistry. So I've had my fingers in a lot of different aspects of biology, and all through that time, I've been writing. I write mostly futuristic urban fantasy and my metamorph series, <laughs> metamorph city series, the fourth book just came out. They are all available on Amazon and books 3 and 4 are available on Audible. The other ones are coming eventually. In, in some po- some point in our lifetime, I also run a podcast called The Raven and the Writing Desk where I share my fiction and interview other authors and I put a lot of biology in my urban fantasy.
3: Wow, okay, well, <laughs> I, you guys are awesome. Um, yeah. I'm Jana, I'm actually not a writer, but I read quite a bit, So, and I have a lot of opinions. My master's degree is in forensic archaeology. Um, I currently uh, work in a molecular diagnostics lab at Children's Hospital uh, doing genetic and infectious disease. Uh, diagnoses actually. Before I did that, I was in clinical trials, so nice. I'm also, so also clinical research. So there's a lot of overlap over here, which is <laughs> which is very cool. And, and our uh, our lab across the hall is microbiology, so <laughs> micro. micro. So um, I don't have podcasts or anything. I don't have anything nearly that impressive as yeah. you guys, but yeah, <laughs> getting there, getting there. I'm, I'm still kind of up and coming. So but I, so it's a real honor to be on a panel with all of you gentlemen. That's great. So here's
1: the question, or the the statement and question that we are assigned. With quote-unquote hard science fiction, great efforts are taken to get the physics right, but a lot of the biological details are glossed over if not ignored. What are some basic principles of biology that you should know for writing good science-based fiction? So my question for the panelists is, the first question is, what are some basic principles (laughs) of biology that you should know for writing good science-based fiction?
3: Oh man. Um, where do you start? <laughs> Actually, I think one that's really getting me right now is um, basic foundations of genetics. I think yes. people <laughs> I think I mean, people know that you know genetics is really is really up and coming. It's really hot right now. It's become such a, a, a niche field. and I think people want to jump on it, but they get a little overzealous and don't understand the basic foundations of how genetics works, so you can definitely incorporate it, especially in like you know sci-fi and fantasy. But really, just just at least read a Wikipedia article on it or something, you know, just to kind of understand like just the most basic concepts of it. Please, genetics for dummies. Ge- yes, it, that is actually, and I think I have that book. For <laughs> genetics for dummies. There really? <laughs> yeah, I think I have that one. Or molecular biology uh, made plain and simple. I mean, it's got a monkey on the front, so it's you know it's it's a good read. So yeah, so that that would be for me. I I would strongly recommend at least getting a basic foundation. A little bit of basic
0: biochemistry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, biochemistry gets glossed over a lot too. Yeah. I'm sure mm-hmm. like, people make a lot of uh, make a lot of mistakes when or it people to kind People of, they have their eyes glazed over when somebody says, "Oh, there's twelve carbons." <laughs> <laughs> I see lines and that, and that really <laughs> weird circle in the mm-hmm.
0: So one thing, and I'm. For specifically, especially for people doing science fiction, and I'm thinking like outer space science fiction, where anytime you involve alien life, the thing that I think people need to spend more time thinking about in their writing is evolutionary ecology. Every alien critter that you put into your book has to have a niche that it is occupying... Thank you, D. <laughs> it has to have a niche that it's occupying and there has to be like a support structure. There has to be like an ecosystem that it is part of. You have to think about these or if you're doing hard sci-fi, Space Opera, science fantasy, go nuts. But uh, <laughs> if you're if you were trying to be taken seriously as a hard sci-fi writer and you've taken all this effort to get your physics right, please for the love of God understand a bit about evolution and how organisms participate in an ecosystem and the fact you have to not only know what does this thing eat and what eats it, but how is it modifying its environment? Um, To take a really basic example, if you look at rainforests, the rainforest could not exist without the trees that are there. You cut down the trees, not only does the rainforest not grow back, you don't just not have that tree anymore. You lose the entire support system and you lose the ability to recreate that support system within that particular spot because the rainforest exists as a bootstrapped ecosystem that has slowly built itself up over the course of thousands of years, millions of years to the point where it is a interrelated, interdependent system and if you remove the foundations of that or any link in it, or, any, or any, key, like any keystone species in it you're going to collapse the entire system and it's not coming back Mm-hmm. not in the same form that it was there before. So you need to think about the organisms in your alien worlds and how they are interdependent upon one another. Oh, we're Wait
2: for all the other questions. I agree with both of what the genetics thing kills me. It's like just because we know the code of a gene does not mean that we know how that gene works or any permutation of mm-hmm. that code will affect that gene's Functionality, mm-hmm. And it always blows my mind when they code the gene, they know what it does, and da-da-da-da-da. No, it doesn't work. That It's not that easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but because you guys already touched on that, I'm going to go a different direction. I read a lot of fantasy, and there are a lot of injuries in my fantasy Ooh, world. And I worked in a hospital mm-hmm. a lot, and I've seen a lot of radiographs of trauma medicine. I used to teach in a simulator lab and advanced cardiac life support and things like that. I've seen injuries that you would swear on a stack of Bibles that that person's dead. But no, they're not. And at the same time, I've seen things that you think that person is fine and they're dead. Okay, but there's certain injuries that will kill you outright and certain th- injuries that are survivable and how the human body acts under trauma and things like that. And this is where Hollywood drives me
3: crazy, okay?
2: Um, I've seen some really convincing ones. The seventh warrior, a guy got a- an arrow through his neck and then got up and fought. Well, if it doesn't hit anything vital, right? yes. But
3: there's so... It's much vital.
2: Uh, but you can go uh, penetrating trauma versus blood trauma, things like that. You know, penetrating trauma does a lot less damage. But let's go and move on. But, yeah, trauma, that's my big thing. Yeah, what bodies do under, under zero pressure, vacuum, you know, you don't explode, right? Right. Uh, we know that now.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I would be doing with, a, with a horrible bullet wound, right? You right. Can still I, get I, up and, and save the day.
1: Right, yeah. Well, the thing I would add, I've obviously agreed with these folks, is uh, if you're dealing with alien life, Familiarize yourself with the rest of life on planet Earth. Mammals mm-hmm. are weird.
3: <laughs> <laughs> what we do
1: isn't normal. So for instance. Breathing in and breathing out is not the default. In, for example, in birds, mm-hmm. and in, it's beginning to appear in lepidosaurs as well. We know birds and crocs, and now it's looking like at least some lipidosaurs. So a, a lizard snakes into a taurus. There's unidirectional flow through the lungs. And it's a countercurrent exchange going on. And, or sex determination.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Sex determination in theory mammals, yeah, it's XXXY. In birds, it is the females that have the alternative chromosome pattern. In monotremes, so the egg laying mammals, there's like seven uh, chromosomes mm-hmm. involved. So it's incredibly End. complex. And that's just in ambience. I mean, you go to the rest of the diversity. There's temperature (laughs) temperature determination in crocodilians and in turtles. It's not chromosomal determination of sex. It's what temperature you develop in. There's lots of different options. Mm -hmm. So you can't always default to the familiar, or one can, obviously, because (laughs) people do. One can look at this vast diversity of things, which we know work because they're here on Earth, and then use those as maybe a starting point. But then imagine there would have to be plenty of other options, too, that just haven't manifested here on Earth. Mm-hmm.
0: I think this, this speaks to a tremendous opportunity that science fiction writers or second world fantasy authors mm-hmm. have when you're building your worlds. Is There's so much weird shit on our mm-hmm. planet yeah. <laughs> right. that yeah. people aren't familiar with that you can take and use and expand upon and make that the basis of your dominant species. Mm-hmm. And people will think you're the most creative, <laughs> imaginative <laughs> person and say, where did you come up with this? Well, actually, Pyology that exists. <laughs> <laughs> no, probably not um, 101, maybe 301.
2: Yeah. Uh, a great example of the sex determination thing is in reef fishes. There's usually one one male, especially with wrasses, if there's one male fish, if you pick that guy mm-hmm. off, the dominant female becomes male.
1: Yeah.
2: Cha-ching! <laughs> How cool is that? And yeah. one of the one of the ones I, I read a little while ago, there's a cricket, a high-altitude cricket, that freezes solid every night. Wow. How cool is that? Right. You know, mm-hmm. and they've got
1: antifreeze for blood, and, and, mm-hmm. and they thaw out every morning and crawl away. And this would be a species which would be, well, the, the technical term is exapted. People used to say pre- pre-adapted, but exapted for cryogenic oh, absolutely. deep space yeah. exploration. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because mm-hmm. it's a oh, moral part of the biology.
2: There's studies going on right now about how does this critter do that without protein damage? Yeah, you know? yeah.
1: So that, that a, a civilization derived from these sort of creatures yeah. could do those long, deep sleep expeditions without having to invent a new technology. Yeah, oh, we're just going to sleep. We're hibernating. Yeah, yeah.
0: Turn the thermostat down. down. <laughs> There's some interesting stuff that you can do anytime you're looking at animals that push their physiology to the extremes. If you look at um, deep diving mammals, deep diving mammals, mm-hmm. to take an example, fasting mammals, the elephant seals that I studied. Go. They're they're basic mammal structure. They're not that different from dogs, but they can go nine to twelve weeks without food or water. Nine to twelve weeks. Breeding well. season is intense. It's after, It's the post weaning fast. After, you know, mom comes ashore, gives birth, pumps the baby with four months worth of food in one month's time, and then she splits for Hawaii and leaves the, the pup on the beach. That pup has no idea wow. how to be a seal. It takes 9 to 12 weeks to figure it out. Wow. So there's really cool stuff, and if you get into the, the biochemistry of this, you can start to find, like, a lot of these adaptations come from really simple changes. Mm. There's, there's a whole family of fishes up and down the west coast of the Americas that go from Central and South America, that go from the equator all the way down to Antarctica. And... If you look at their proteins, you know, protein enzymes work by uh, sort of a clamshell function. You've got hinges that open to receive the substrate, close. They do the reaction, then they open and release it again. If you look at the, the, the species in this family that are along the equator, they've got a very rigid amino acid in those hinges. It's a proline, so it's, it's a very stiff hinge. And so at high temperatures it doesn't open very much. If, it were, if they had like uh, an alanine like you have in the, the sort of temperate region fish, it's a, a looser amino acid, they'd be flopping all over and the protein wouldn't work very well. So by changing just two amino acids in the sequence in the right place, you change the function of the protein or you make it work in a different temperature range. You go down to Antarctica, they've got a glycine there, the, most, the smallest, most flexible amino acid so that at very low temperatures, you can still get the same range of motion that, that you need. do they switch do they switch it do they they're, switch, different, the, the they're different species so okay. you've got you at some point a mutation happened that right, changed right. the the hinge, and those those fish were able to migrate no, to a different. There's
2: no different example of, of a of a critter that that will produce one protein in one environment
0: and then switch to another protein in another environment. There might be. Yeah. I don't know. Like that would be mean, the bomb. That's I would. I would yeah. expect yeah. if. I would it's ex- switch hitting right. I would expect <laughs> if you looked at the anadromous fishes. Sure, yeah. Things like mm. salmon mm. and mm. um and. Oh, and their, pump,
2: their whole fluidics.
0: Exp- osmotic pump system is just totally bizarre right you go from salt living in saltwater, living in freshwater. you've got to completely change up your biochemistry sure. in order to to function in that mm-hmm. different osmotic environment so there's definitely systems where this happens where uh, one animal one individual animal is able to switch over their biochemistry from one thing to another mm-hmm. so it, it, it can certainly happen but yeah. you know i'm talking about within the evolutionary mm-hmm. context sure, yeah. So, <laughs> oh, a question now. No, then, no, you can just it. one of the things that's sort of picking back here about the, the ecological structure. One of the things that's key to that is energy flow. Mm-hmm. Yes, oh, yeah. the energy comes in from the sun or from you know geothermal or something like that, and it goes to primary yeah. uh, producers, to the first level consumers, to the second level consumers, and there's less and less mm-hmm. mass mm-hmm. each. The, first, the more steps you are from the energy that, source, yeah. there's less and less mass. Yes. That yes.
2: is an awesome thing, and that is something my, my wife is also a, a scientist. Uh, she's actually studying marine biology. She hates theory. environments. <laughs> there's too many top-end predators. Yes, wow. absolutely. You know, yeah. it's like yeah. everything's a
1: massive carnivore.
2: No, yeah. that's not how This is the <laughs> question I
1: give students in 100-level classes is right. why, like, the Savage Land in, in Marvel can't can't exist. Can't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Is you can't have a world, Dom, and you can't have a world where the majority of the biomass is right. locked up as apex predators. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, you can. Or Inter- the period.
0: Well, no, 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 no. Like, o- deep water oceanic systems, most of the biomass at oh, any right, given yeah. time is at the top of the food chain. But you have enormous productivity at the plankton level yeah, right. that's being turned over right. all the time. Fair enough, yeah, yeah. yeah. So standing biomass and, and overall productivity so, are not the same thing. Right. Fair enough, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So it's, But you um, have to pay attention to the energy. Yeah, you have to pay attention. Exactly. Yeah, you to to pay lose yeah. energy at each step. I mean, exactly. That's the key point. Anytime you have a lost world type scenario, you've got to really think carefully about where, right. where your energy is flowing and, and whether there's enough energy in this system for it to work.
1: Right, right. like at a typical world in which you're like the, the terrestrial realm, and you're dealing with plants, macro plants, as the major food source. If you want giant animals, you have short food chains. Mm-hmm. Because that, that's where you, that, and that and historically in the history of our planet, that's when we got the giant animals, is when you started to get big macro herbivores. So you had big plants, you have macro plants, macro herbivores, big ass carnivores eating them. If you have a food chain more like a lot of typical things, you have plants, little insects eating them, and then arachnids eating them, and then small predators eating them, you wind up with creatures at the top of those chains, which are things like, you know, minks or or a badger or something like that because you've got so many steps.
0: Now, there's another thing to think about when you're talking about if you're going to do science fiction or fantasy that's got giant megafauna in it, which is oxygen supply. Yes. Um, The reason why we don't have dinosaurs anymore, why we didn't get dinosaur-sized critters again after the Yucatan disaster, is we went from 30% oxygen to, what is it, about 18%, 16%? Well, it's 20% now. 20% oxygen now. So we've drastically lost a lot of the oxygen that was in the environment. That means that any oxygen exchange system whether it's lungs, whether it's spiracles, whatever, does not work as well as it used to. And so you've got a, I, a limiting... I would say it has to work more efficiently now than it, has it to, before. Right, but there's, there's, there, it has to work more efficiently, but there are structural limitations on how sure. efficient yeah. Yeah. things can get. The basic architecture of the mammalian lung cannot get above about a 40% oxygen exchange. Hmm. You can cheat... If you do what seals do, which is you go into apnea, so you mm. let your your blood oxygen get super low, and then you start breathing again, and you get a faster, you get a more efficient right. exchange from that, you can get more oxygen out of every breath. But that's really extreme. We did studies on oxygen consumption, it's really amazing. You can hook an animal, or a human for that
2: matter, up to a closed circuit device that, that scrubs out CO2 and watch the oxygen consumption on every breath. And it's really inefficient as hell. Mm-hmm. I mean, we inhale 18-point-something percent oxygen. We exhale about 17-point-something percent oxygen mm-hmm. with every breath. It's not lack of oxygen. This is another thing. And the, it's not lack of oxygen that drives your breathing. It's buildup of CO2. It's the baroreceptors in your lungs mm-hmm. that are screaming, there's too much CO2, we have to dump this, because CO2 creates acid in your blood, and your okay. whole biochemistry gets all wonky. So, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and we're leaving out the poor oh, no, lady okay.
1: here. i have actually that, really enjoyed this. Listen to <laughs> Because uh, yeah. I can talk for right i have, I'll, I'll jump in when yeah, I can. One more so. thing about oxygen, and then I got a, a general question for, for all the panelists. So, is that you, the oxygen has to come from somewhere? And like Dune, yeah. where yeah. is what is the base of the photosynthetic pathway on a planet? I, I know there's the sand plankton. You have to yeah. know that it's worm farts. <laughs> worm farts. <laughs> <laughs> in the appendix. Jeez.
0: Yeah, it's, yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 I, it's, it's, there doesn't seem to be explained right. enough oxygen yes. that it's supporting not merely human-sized organisms, but kilometer-sized <laughs> organisms with really, really, really rapid motion and so forth. Mm-hmm. So a question. Uh, another question I thought of was, the portrayal of not just the science of biology, but the profession of biology. So biologists <laughs> in fiction, what have you seen that you really like, or what would you like to see in fiction, whether it's science fiction or you know fantasy biologists, what exactly that would be? Mm-hmm.
3: So I put that to the, the panelists. Let's start. It oh, I think um, actually something that we were discussing uh, earlier today, when, we, when I was saying I was going to be on this panel, is the portrayal of the actual labs. In um, oh. in um, and since you know science is you know become kind of a, a buzz thing now in on TV you know, the, you know with the growing of technology and as people are you know learning more you know science is, is is hot but seeing how the labs are laid out seeing what the technology actually is like what's accessible how people treat the technology how people even. Are they even wearing gloves in this lab? Are they drinking coffee in this lab? Are they, you know, and I, being in that field, you know, it's very easy to be very nitpicky and say, ah, yeah, yeah, but also, but so, so it's always nice when I see things actually like, oh yeah, that, that actually is kind of how it would work. You know, that actually, yeah, I could, I could see that, you know, that's, that's a good layout, you know. When, when they, we actually do have biologists and scientists in fiction, I, I for me, it's, I look at the, the actual, like, practicality of the layout of, of the, word, the environment that they're working in.
0: I think that the bugbear that I have with the portrayal of scientists in fiction is lay people do not realize often how incredibly specific an individual scientist's knowledge is. <laughs> and the more education you get, the further you go in your profession, the narrower <laughs> the your focus you is. There is, oh, right. you know, Pigeon like pigeonholing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you get you get incredibly locked in to your specific little world. My father was a radiation biophysicist. (laughs) (laughs) I was in a lab that worked with marine mammals and looked. we had like a dozen people, it was a huge lab, that all worked on different facets of physiological ecology of marine mammals. And that's a pretty narrow field to begin with. And within that, each of us who were working within that field were so focused on our individual system that, like, I know that one of my lab mates was doing something with fur seals. I couldn't tell you what it was. I couldn't tell you anything about her research except it had something to do with fur seal fur and energy, like heat exchange, something like that. I don't remember. And even when I was working in the lab, I didn't know. You, you get so closed off to the world around you. In order to be, to be a, a research scientist, you have to develop an obsessive level of interest in a very small question. Can we talk about entomology here? Ed, yeah, yeah. Ed Wilson and his obsession with ants, yeah. for example. But yeah, I mean, we expect in our popular media for you to be able to bring a question to the scientist, or even just the biologist. (laughs) And hey, you're a biologist. Here's a biology-related question. I'm telling you right now, if that guy's a research biologist, or that lady is a research biologist, they're going to not even have a any more clue than your, your average well-read layperson mm-hmm. about that topic unless it directly impinges upon something that they've studied. Yeah, the, let, the
2: let the me go look that up for you. you. Yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. Um,
0: OK, two things. First
2: is simple and easy. Um, Biologists in the movies make too much money. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> the whole notion of the rock star biologist, you know, <laughs> geneticist, you know, flying in the helicopter and going to the site where he's doing... Nah, oh, well,
3: you know. Unless you're
2: Craig Ventner. <laughs> <laughs> not that they're not out there, but just, yeah. you know.
3: <laughs>
2: Which is the whole point of why I sold my soul to biomedicine, because I, I walked literally walked across the street at University of Texas Medical Branch and tripled my salary. Wow. You know, from a marine biologist to a a molecular biology assistant. That Mm -hmm. was back when the world was young. And the Earth was just cool. Mm -hmm. Um, But the second thing is the whole personal protection equipment. In a recent movie just came out, and they're landing on an alien world, and nobody's wearing anything (laughs) to protect themselves versus infected agents and you know what Mm -hmm.
1: happens they all get infected
2: and die yeah amazing you know so well duh (laughs) i I used to do a lot of work in a intensive care unit and ppe personal protective equipment is available everywhere and hand washers are available everywhere and there were patients that you did not even go into their room without suiting up completely Mm -hmm. that's ppe equipment hands face eye shields I recently had a trauma. I was down in Panama and it shocked me. I went to the ER and I had, I, I cut off the end of my thumb, but the doctor who was doing the surgery on my thumb with a pair of rongiers, which are bone clippers, right? And he wasn't even wearing eye protection. Oh This is Panama, okay? This is third world. But it's not third world, because we're in Panama City. This is a class A hospital, right? And here he is going, chink, 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 and there's pieces of bone going, pew,
1: pew, pew on
2: And he's not even wearing glasses, let alone eye shields. And I was like, dude, what are you doing? And he looked at me like, what? So as the technology gets better, as our protections get better, as the threats get greater, HIV, hepatitis, things Mm -hmm. like that, that you can get, somebody coughs on you, Mm -hmm. and it's like, you know, so, yeah, personal protective equipment, and as we go into alien worlds and don't understand alien biologies and all this stuff, mm-hmm. oh, my God, you would not even open the door for, for days. You'd sit there and yeah. take, bu- take samples and, and
1: read the atmosphere and look for infected yeah. agents and all this stuff. So that's my pet peeve. So uh, to add to the whole the lab pet peeve thing, uh, one more thing that, that uh, in popular portrayal of it, lights aren't that expensive?
3: <laughs> leave them on? <laughs> How
1: many shows where they're working at night, you could tell they're working at night because the, their only illumination is the computer monitor and the one glowing piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. It's like, leave the lights on the lab, turn them off when you leave. <laughs> 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 um, Most are uh, on all the time. It's on all the time, exactly. <laughs> and uh, I would say that the other thing specifically, <laughs> that I would like to see portrayed more in, in popular presentations of biology, yes. and it's not it's not strictly biology, it's science in general, is the existence of postdocs you <laughs> uh, uh, labor. Exactly. You know, there's, there's this yeah, huge community. Yeah, there's this, this huge community that does a lot of the legwork of advanced research. Pretty much all of it. All yeah. of it, yeah. That, that simply not portrayed in popular culture. You mm-hmm. can get the undergraduates occasionally shown, graduate students are occasionally shown, and then either people working for the institution or the professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this. There's this really active part of the field that doesn't seem to have a good presence in mm-hmm. the popular science. So right. if your writers one out there
2: of, one of the reasons I kind of got out of the PhD track for marine biology was I after graduate school, I realized after my first year of graduate, I realized that PhD marine biologists never got to go in the field. Exactly. They never get exactly. to do any of the fun stuff. So, yeah, I just decided, look, you know, I'll just, I'll just go tromp through the marsh and do the fun stuff and, sit mm-hmm. in a, and do the lab work and stuff like that. I don't
0: need to write grants all day, which yeah. is what they do. They, they write yeah. grants, and they, they teach and classes, they go around to other people, and they beg for money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> So basically, you know, having Starfleet maybe employing their science specialists. You know, they mm-hmm. aren't officers, they're postdocs. This is their field research, and then after they've gone on the the five-year mission, then they're starting to look for a permanent job back on, you know, Mm -hmm. University of Vulcan.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just just have a general problem with how labs are portrayed, especially on television. I am rather
0: fond of CSI, Mm -hmm. but I look at those labs, and I look at places that I have seen before, like police stations,
3: and I have never seen police station that, that clean. And you, <laughs> I lab that clean. And you walk yeah. in and it smells like BO
1: coffee and
3: other body awful from people who they have taken in for whatever
1: reason.
2: Step into a marine biology lab sometime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's disgusting.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and nobody ever runs around knocking you know, I mean... I mean, you know, I, in, a, in a biophysics lab or a biochemistry mm-hmm. lab like you've got in a, in, you know... In
2: Genetics labs have to be a lot cleaner and things yeah. like that, because there's lots mm-hmm. of, lots of... Microbiology labs, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But, you know, I mean, the track lighting and all that crap? No. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah.
1: So, in uh, The, the or, portrayal of the lab, even just, as she's saying, a
3: not normal modern lab, if they know a camera's coming in... It gets totally
0: changed. <laughs> real pretty stuff. Real impressive oh, stuff stuck out. Normally, is you get
2: You put up all the numbers. pretty pictures. Yeah. <laughs>
0: up, yeah.
2: Because the cameras coming in. So the what, what we see <laughs> normally
1: of what a lab looks like isn't a working lab, it's... it's
3: yeah, obviously, yeah, no. I mean, yeah. Especially if you if you have to share your bench with other people, and they, oh, yeah. you know, they, they are going to leave it a hot mess before you... So get
0: there's a lady in the back with a Oh, yeah, down <laughs> um, oh, yeah, in the white, so
1: uh, <laughs> Your portrayal of uh, from in Hollywood, issues with it. It yeah. was a couple decades ago, someone was stabbed like three dozen times, and <laughs> people were thinking, it's God, he's really twisted. Well, no, it was panic.
0: Because yeah. Hollywood says, "Who stab a guy? He dies right there." No, it, he doesn't. Even the worst case, unless you hit the spine, he's gonna he, beat on you for a minute. Before he passes. It's like, I love that. You, you it's can, it's you it's can do, like you
2: it. can do immediate lethal damage with a, with a knife and things like that. But I've seen radiographs one in particular a radiograph of a, of a hysterical stab wound a woman stabbed her husband in the skull with a knife right here and it went right between the two hemispheres of his brain and he walked into the ER wow. <laughs> I, the I, I, no i do not this that's a good one. Her, her that's amazing, pretty, pretty amazing pretty yeah. yeah,
1: amazing Yeah that was
2: they did not ask for his insurance
1: <laughs> okay so so <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> he, after he stabs the guy <clears> throat> slowly throat> count to 60 and imagine his response before he
1: <laughs> so, so our order is going to be in the black cap the white shirt and back <laughs> over there for the next three so
3: nice i i feel like in portrayals of evolution for example mm-hmm. it's a lot of that kind of idea that evolution progresses forward mm-hmm.
1: No idea
2: Evolution is even messier than a marine biology lab.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it, goes, it goes to you know, especially you know, this is even worse. You know, if you go to early science fiction, where you have the evolvo chamber, <laughs> early bad science fiction, <laughs> an evolvo chamber, and you put the person in there, and we're going to turn it up, so this is what he will be like in 10 million years, oh, oh, the, oh, the, yeah, the yeah, giant yeah. brains, telepath, telekinetic. It's like, no, it, since there's no one else in there with them. He's not evolving into anything yeah. because you know Yeah.
3: Evolution.
1: <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, so I recently just uh, finished reading
2: uh, *Old Man's War*, mm. and uh, I was looking at the different alien life in that, and so, and how they approach learning
3: about other other mm. life forms.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: How would if say We made contact with an alien
2: civilization or an alien planet where we don't even know what we know it's habitable for us, but we don't even know what the primary form of life takes on that planet. How do you? How would you go about writing that? How would you go about exploring that? I mean,
0: it's a tough. tough That's a tough. It's a tough call. I'll tell you one thing that that Scalzi did really well in that series is that the organisms, the alien species that were the least like humans. Were the ones that we could get along with the most because our niches didn 't overlap the ones that looked the most cuddly and, and you know uh, approachable and like something that you would encounter on in our world. Those were the, the species that we had to fight to the death because there was a direct competition for resources, for the same resources. We wanted the same planets, and we wanted the same things yeah. on those planets.
1: The little fuzzy uh, animals, to
0: quote Mr. Yeah. Right, the little fuzzy animals are the ones yeah. that are dangerous. It
1: would, it, would be, it would definitely, uh, if, if you were doing it... Assuming you had the, the personnel for it. It would be a really interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary expedition you would have to do. There would be mm-hmm. biochemists and microbiologists and mm-hmm. physiologists and everyone trying to figure out the different elements of it. And then, you know, the daily reports where they're going in and trying to right. synthesize it. And it
0: mm-hmm. would be very difficult for us to even know for a long period of time yeah. whether a given species was even sentient. Mm-hmm. Unless okay. they had advanced technology that we could see like we're now pretty sure that dolphins and octopuses are if not sentient then damn close but it took a long time to figure that out especially octopuses because they're so different from us they they took such a different evolutionary path to get to where they are but yeah it's it's hard and our first contacts with aliens are not going to be like The Vulcan showing up in you know the backwoods of Montana. Arrival. Arrival. Yes.
2: Was one of the best portrayals I've seen of a first contact because there's no clue. We have no clue what language is, what and you know, to get actually outside of biology into like psychology, we don't know what an alien psychology, or even Uh if they think in linear terms or Uh or anything like that. You know, group mind think versus Are they individuals? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, that's going to be the big break, not just the biology, because we have means of analyzing biological compounds Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But psychology, we don't have that, you know, ability to know what they're thinking.
0: And related to that, it is possible that we will at some point encounter an intelligence that is incredibly smart, (laughs) capable of solving very complex problems, rational, analytical way, that does not have consciousness, that does not have theory of mind, theory (laughs) of self, because those things are not the same. And the first place we're going to encounter this is in our own computers. One of the
2: biggest glitches with the Fermi hypothesis, everybody kind of have an idea what the Fermi hypothesis Mm is, is that aliens... Raise your hand if you don't know what the Fermi hypothesis is. Fermi hypothesis is if there's alien life out there, why haven't we seen it? Because of the age of the universe it. or heard from it. Because of the age of the universe, a primordial intelligence will have colonized the whole universe by now, even at sublight travel speeds. So the base fallacy of the Fermi hypothesis is that aliens think like we do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay? That they're expansionists, that they're technological, that all these things that we are, if we, if we think like we think, we're never going to communicate with an alien.
1: So the, the hand of the back first, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, have any of you read the nonfiction book that came out last year, Lab Girl? Um, <coughs> it's about a bot. A, it's um, memoirs of, of a, a woman who's a botanist, um, and she talks about you know fascinating things about the things she learned about plants, but she also talks almost as much about the importance of money.
3: Oh yeah. oh yeah. Oh yeah. And she says she even says that, that that
1: you know she would be tempted
0: that if she could knew she could get money out of it she might be tempted to say something that was you know to you know fudge her uh, fudging data.
2: Results uh-huh. or I've been it. Theory. I have worked in a lab that that was working on funding and I was asked as a technician way back when the role was young to fudge data. Um, to just, and it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh my god, we're going to lie. It was one outlier that put it past P005 significance level so that it was publishable. Well, the whole thing of significant data is a fallacy in and of itself. There's no such thing as negative data. so And a lot of scientists, because their funders, think that, well, you didn't prove your hypothesis, this is all crap. No, we, we actually disproved our hypothesis mm-hmm. yeah. and put us onto a whole new track. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. science. That is science. Right. And as soon as you cross that line and say, well, I'm just going to fudge my data a tiny bit to make this significant, you are, you are throwing a, a
1: wrench into the machine of science. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is Hope Yarn's book? Yes. That's yes, it. yes. Yeah, she has lots of interesting and sort of the Chinese – yeah. interesting stories of, of practice in the society of science, and yeah, I haven't I haven't read the book, but I've read many other things by her, and, and yeah. So uh, Renee, and then and we can go on afterwards. Okay,
3: um, there's just one was about the uh, from the back about the lab testing, where in a lot of books they test for everything, and it's like you, how can you if you don't know what you're testing for, mm-hmm. how can you test you, you, you don't know mm-hmm. what to test for. It's like, how did you miss that? Because we didn't have a test mm. for that. Mm-hmm. We were testing for these things, and it wasn't any of those, but it was something that we didn't know to test for. Right. And but they just say, oh, we test for mm-hmm. infectious agents, and there wasn't any, <coughs> having, you know, and I absolutely th- agree with that. I absolutely. That, that always drives me crazy, you know. like Define you know. infectious agents and how you detect them. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, right. Yeah. Yeah. When, especially when you're testing for a specific virus or, or a specific bacteria, you need specific primers and probes for, for, to to you know, tack on to the the target that you're looking for and amplify the target that you're looking for. So to just kind of assume that I'm just going to throw it in the machine and it'll test positive for this and negative for this. It just it doesn't work that way. You really I mean, I sometimes
0: have culture and, for tuberculosis. No, you don't. No. no. And as a as a as a microbiologist, I can tell you that even if an organism is there. You may have a hell of a time finding oh, yeah. a culture media that it will grow in. Yeah. Yeah. There are more microbes that we have never, ever, ever. Grown in the lab. you mm-hmm. Grown in the lab. Sure. Yeah. Sure. There's there's things that we know are there that are very hard to test for because they just they're they're finicky. You and know? you may
3: even run out of sample before you figure it out, uh-huh.
0: depending on, on
3: your sample source. There's a lot of stuff we know are there
0: just because we have the genes from them. Right. Yeah, we can see the organism. Yeah. We can see the genetic um, <laughs> signal, but we have no idea what the organism is like. Mm-hmm. So, is there anyone on this side of the ah?
3: It was the rabbit. Um. <clears throat> the one thing that annoys me, especially in the, um, like the CSI, NCI, is, is the time it takes to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. you know, mm-hmm. Something like
2: that.
0: We'll have it genome coded in the morning. And there's another thing about that too, which is Cost. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, the, so if you're... Yeah, if, like, I've, I've written... I wrote a, a police procedural in my third book in this series. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, police procedural in an urban fantasy world. And there's things that they... You know, questions that they have unanswered in the mystery because that's it's not cost-effective to go and test for all of these things. Uh-huh. It's like, we could run this test, but it's going to cost, you know thousands of marks, and it's going to take time that we don't have, and it's going to come straight out of our budget. You know, we have to focus our, our resources on the, the things that we, you know, can afford to, to look into.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, let's see, people grab it, uh, and the glasses scan the green back there, yeah, or is it gray, sorry, it's gray. gray. <laughs> yeah, it looks, it looks green, the light, though. But...
0: Um, so I, too, was yelling about the container
1: protocols in
2: the new movie, and <laughs> a movie that shall remain nameless. <laughs>
1: I'm we will make thinking. a pact or <laughs> a covenant about that. <laughs>
3: <clears throat> so I was wondering if you guys have any examples of good times when the contagion protocols were
2: followed and still failed, because those I think are way more interesting. The first Alien people. movie. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't let him back on. The yes. Shed, mm-hmm. You know. And what the hell happened? Robots. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you no, know, right, exactly. But um, the other guy the door. Containment protocols. A, uh, a good example of containment protocols was. Uh, arrival yep. when they went aboard that ship they were in full bio suits in fact radiation suits too they, they were in complete <laughs> containment suits and then they came back and they spent an hour and a half in decon and then she boldly took it off the thing that they screwed up was after she took it off she wouldn't be coming back into the facility but but yeah the, the, their initial bio precautions were very very good
0: mm-hmm. um there are i mean to a certain extent you don't have a story if everybody does their it does everything <laughs> right. exactly right. Because somebody's got to screw something up, but it's somebody they have to screw it up in believable ways. Yes. Like the reason yes, you yes. know the reason things go wrong in Alien is because people are making what seem like rational decisions based on their own self-interest. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You
2: know. The, or programming. Yeah. yeah.
0: Right. Exactly.
3: Doing what he was supposed to. The whole point was to bypass. Right. these uh, right. circumstances so that the non-biological being could bring the biological sample back. Mm-hmm. Now, if someone wants to do an expanded universe thing about what the uh, when they come back to, to Earth and they want to contain it, then... Right. Yeah.
1: So we have we're about two minutes yeah. left, and you've had your hand up for a while in the blue, so... Yeah.
2: Um, I was just curious, because you guys were touching on genetics before, if anybody had any... Well, okay, if anyone's read slash, if anyone has any strong opinions about um, seven use. The Neil Stevens, a uh, oh. huge genetics component that is yeah. very
1: interesting and entertaining, but also a little fantastic. It's, he's fallen for the epigenetics equals magic. <laughs> you know, every, every, in evolutionary biology and genetics, you, you can almost, you can almost mark your calendar by the time that someone rediscovers epigenetics that we've always known has existed for a long time. And said this means that everything we know about evolution and mutation and so forth is wrong, mm-hmm. except it isn't, <laughs> and this actually is part of our understanding of how, how this works. So, that said, I think it's a really cool story. <laughs> i
3: have to read that one. I'm actually Yeah. Read that one.
1: Okay. It, um, it, just really briefly, the premise, and this doesn't give anything away, it's like one, all sorts of awards. There is like the worst possible disaster, and humanity has to <coughs> repopulate from an extremely small number of bottom original net. individuals. Mm, so. yeah.
0: Genetic bottleneck. Yeah. Ah. Which is something that already happened to humanity yeah. once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: Oh, well, Twice,
0: <laughs> in fact. Once that we know of. Yeah. <laughs> once that we can talk about There's some evidence
1: of two bottles. So yeah, we, so... We're Probably just out of, out of time. Yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, is there anything, any last
3: any of the panelists want to say? So. Um, well, I have a couple of things I wanted to mention. Um, one was as far as the the time and the money. I mean, PCR takes all day. You know, like mm-hmm. even like the most basic is short tandem repeat takes it takes all day. So, next gen sequencing takes a week. I mean, again, the CSI put you know. The, the, how fast you get results is that, 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 just be realistic is. you know like and yes it will get faster and yes the technology will get better and, but it just it, it, it does take time and you know so you need a lot of patience and money that's the other thing is that not every lab has the most up to date equipment or the mo- best maintained equipment or the, or the most staff you know in order to run all the equipment so again just looking at science in general just please try to be realistic <laughs> don't, don't expect magic
0: I'm just going to pimp my stuff. If you like your urban fantasy with a bit of biology in it, check out Metamore City, www.metamorecity.com. My books are on Amazon. My podcast is on iTunes or the Apple Store or wherever you get your podcasts from. And my author website is chrislester.org. You can find me at Jack's Books, that's J A X
2: and I do have one new novel out, came out last year, Dragon Dreams is a contemporary fantasy set in Ed Greenwood's new universe of Helma. that has a lot of biology in it, paleontology and biology. Cool, in it. nice. And yeah, PCR takes all night. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Generally, people that do PCR, they set it, go home, yeah. sleep, come back in the morning and, and mm-hmm. find out if they got anything. Yeah, um, if you're lucky. Yeah, with a whole... Sh- crap load of primers. They have shotgun <laughs> primers that, yeah. that look for common gene, gene sequences and things like that. But anyway, I have full brochures of my work and links to my website. Yeah, jump on yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and cards as well. So drop by and I have a blog. I have no books here, but unless you want to pit me, I can send one to you.
1: And Dinosaur Update, 5pm main programming today. There will be a new... There will be a, a, a non-fiction... Book announcement coming up. You guys are going to be the first people to receive it. And there's a crowdsource component for you, so we're going to want your input. So thank you for showing up. Thank you, guys. It's been great.
0: If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641 715. Then enter extension two five five zero eight two, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash authorchrislester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.